Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Earlier this week, we kicked off our October focus on the rise of anti-Semitism and what it means for America. Our first conversation explored how the European Union's new strategy to combat anti-Semitism can inform that fight here in America. Today, our focus on anti-Semitism continues. Melanie Marin-Pell, AJC's Chief Field Operations Officer, joined me in the virtual studio to interview our guest. I'll turn the mic over to her and join you again later for our Shabbat Table Talk. On the evening of August 11, 2017, hundreds of torch-bearing demonstrators marched through the University of Virginia campus in Charlottesville, Virginia, ostensibly in protest of the proposed removal of a statue of General Robert E. Lee. The marchers came from various factions of the far-right and alt-right, neo-Confederates, neo-Nazis, neo-fascists, white nationalists, Klansmen, militia members, And while the impetus for the rally was the impending removal of the statue, the deeper purpose, as stated by its organizers, was to, quote, unite the right. Menacing images and videos quickly circulated, showing marchers chanting slogans such as, Jews will not replace us, and carrying Nazi flags, Confederate battle flags, and other symbols of neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups. Violent clashes with counter-protesters ensued, resulting in more than 30 injuries. The rally continued into the next day, August 12th, when in the early afternoon, a self-identified white supremacist, James Alex Fields Jr., deliberately rammed his car into a crowd of counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring 35 others. Fields was tried and convicted in Virginia State Court of first-degree murder, as well as other crimes, including federal hate crimes. And while Fields was held accountable for his actions, what about the organizers of the rally? Who would hold them accountable And how would other victims of violence at the hands of the rally-goers be compensated for their injuries? Enter Integrity First for America and its executive director and modern-day Nazi fighter and our guest today, Amy Spitalnik. Amy, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you so much for having me. Amy, let's start. If you can, please share with us what is the mission of Integrity First for America and how did you get involved? As IFA was getting off the ground, the violence in Charlottesville happened in August of 2017, and it became very, very clear very quickly that there needed to be accountability, that there needed to be justice in the aftermath of that violence, and that it was not likely the federal government, and particularly the Department of Justice, would pursue it with the enthusiasm and the vigor that we would have liked to see. And so on behalf of a coalition of Charlottesville community members who were injured in the violence, we filed suit in October of 2017 against the two dozen neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and hate groups that most directly orchestrated the violence. There's so much to say about what happened in Charlottesville that weekend, and I'm sure we're going to get into it. But what I think is most important to understand is that the violence wasn't an accident. Rather, it was planned meticulously in advance on social media and in other forums down to discussions of hitting protesters with cars, which of course is precisely what happened. It was fueled by vile, violent anti-Semitism and racism, other forms of hate. And that very quickly translated into real-world violence, as the organizers planned, over the course of that weekend. 
And again, that's not an accident. That's not a clash between opposing sides. That's a racially motivated, violent conspiracy. And we have laws in this country that are meant to protect against that. And so using those laws, we are holding accountable those responsible. And this case really has become the focal point of our work at IFA because it's too important, too resource intensive, and too crucial at a moment of rising extremism to not be the focus. So I want to come back to hearing a little bit more about you and how you got involved, but let's stick with the trial for a moment because in just a few short weeks, after four long years of depositions, many delays, this lawsuit, Sines versus Kessler, will finally go to trial and the implications are potentially historic. Can you tell us a little bit about what IFA is seeking and a little bit about some of the plaintiffs? The plaintiffs are the bravest people I know. They survived the unthinkable that weekend and have channeled it into this lawsuit, which is really about winning justice, not just for them, but for their community at a moment when accountability and justice have been lacking. And it'll have impacts that extend well beyond Charlottesville. And the fact that they've channeled that into this case is just so courageous. And I'm so fortunate to get to work with them and to know them. They include University of Virginia students who were injured on Friday night, August 11th. We all remember the visceral feeling we had as Jews watching neo-Nazis with tiki torches, specifically chosen to evoke the Nazis and the KKK, chanting things like Jews will not replace us in blood and soil, violently marching on the UVA grounds, surrounding a small group of peaceful counter-protesters at the Thomas Jefferson statue, and kicking, punching, beating them up, throwing fuel and lit torches at them. Our plaintiffs who were there that evening, who were injured in the violence, include an African-American undergrad who said he thought he was going to die, and Liz Sines, who is the named plaintiff in our lawsuit and was a second-year law student at the time, both injured there. And of course, the trauma of that event continues to live with them. Of course, the violence didn't stop with the attack on the UVA campus. It continued all weekend, including extensive violence on Saturday, August 12th. I think one of the lesser known anecdotes from Charlottesville is how the local synagogue became a target, surrounded by these neo-Nazis with semi-automatic weapons who were chanting Sieg Heil and talking in online chats about torching those Jewish monsters. And the detail that I always remember is the synagogue was home to a Torah scroll saved from Nazi Germany, a Holocaust scroll. And in America in 2017, the fact that this Holocaust scroll was once again under Nazi threat just sort of grabs me every time I share it. It's personal for me. I'm the granddaughter of survivors. I know it's personal for many of us, many folks who might be listening. And that's a detail that sticks with me. And it's really indicative of the violence that we saw throughout that whole weekend, which included an attack on interfaith clergy who were peacefully protesting, including one of our plaintiffs, Reverend Seth Whispelway. And of course, the car attack that we all know so well that killed Heather Heyer and injured so many others, including plaintiffs Marcus Martin, who you see in that iconic Pulitzer-winning photo, his then-fiance Marissa Blair, who he had just pushed out of the way, Natalie Romero, whose skull was fractured, and a number of others. And so they really suffered both grievous physical injuries, but of course, the emotional, psychological impact of this also continues for many of them. And they deserve justice. They deserve there to be accountability. Our defendants are a who's who of the violent white supremacist movement in America. Names and groups that I suspect many people listening will know, like Richard Spencer, Andrew England, who runs the Daily Stormer, 
Matthew Heimbach, Identity Europa, Liga of the South, certain KKK groups, National Socialist Movement, which is one of the largest neo-Nazi groups in the country, and a number of others. And of course, they are responsible for what happened in Charlottesville, planning this violence meticulously in their online chats and other communications, and that's what our lawsuit details. But I think it's also important to understand that they're really at the center of this broader movement. We know that they are at the core of a cycle of extremism that we've seen continue since Charlottesville. We know that the Pittsburgh shooter who killed 11 Jews praying on Shabbat three years ago communicated with some of the Charlottesville leaders before his attack. The Christchurch shooter in New Zealand who killed dozens of Muslims praying in mosque there donated to two of our Charlottesville defendants and painted onto his gun a white power symbol popularized by a third. And that attack was cited in the manifestos of the Poe Chabad shooter and the El Paso Walmart shooter. And so I think it's really important to understand how central these defendants are, not just to the violence in Charlottesville, but the broader movement. And that really leads to the last point of your question, what we're seeking. We're seeking accountability for them, justice for our plaintiffs, but this is a civil suit. And so it goes after their finances, their operations. And I think a theory of change here is a simple one. By taking on these extremists, holding them accountable, winning large financial judgments against them for a jury at trial, we can effectively bankrupt and dismantle them, which will have impacts that go well beyond Charlottesville. I think it's fascinating, this notion of we can financially cripple some of these organizations and we know that will have a tremendous impact We also know that there are sometimes, it almost can seem like a hydra with many heads, and that going after their financial resources is one important and crucial aspect of fighting this kind of hate and this kind of organized hate. But what else can and should be done by other organizations like AJC and others? What else can we be doing recognizing that being a bigot is not in and of itself a crime, but we know that we have to try and get to people perhaps before they are seduced by some of this ideology, in addition to going after the financial resources and trying to cripple them that way. Absolutely. This case is so important, but it's not a silver bullet, and it needs to be part of a whole-of-society approach to taking on extremism at a moment when it really is at crisis levels. I think first and foremost, we need to be clear-eyed about threat We know, according to every statistic, every NGO, the federal government under both Donald Trump and Joe Biden have said that white supremacy is, quote, the most persistent and lethal threat to this country. Just a few weeks ago, the FBI put out its latest hate crime stats, which showed 2020 was one of the worst years for hate crimes since 2001. Anti-Semitism is, of course, at record levels, as a number of reports have shown and so have so many other forms of extremism tied to, in many cases, the far right. And so being clear about that, being clear about the threat that white supremacy poses to this country and to our communities, and I think especially to us as Jews who are so often targeted in direct and indirect ways by this extremism, is important. And so education is key in that regard, not just in terms of being clear about the threat, but of course, making sure that we're educating people early on about history, which we know is certainly one of the greatest mitigating factors in preventing people from going down the rabbit hole of extremism. Civil litigation like our case is enormously powerful. So too are criminal charges, and we're starting to finally see some of that come out of the federal government and the aftermath of January 6th after a period of time where civil rights investigations and prosecutions were down to record lows. 
But it's not just the federal government that needs to act. It's state and local governments who have obligations to take on and hold accountable those responsible for hate crimes. In my prior life, I worked in the New York Attorney General's office, and we saw a horrific increase in hate crimes in late 2016. And we issued a bulletin to local governments and PDs making clear their obligations to prosecute hate crimes. And there's so much that state and local governments can do to hold people responsible for their actions and to make sure that all layers of government are working in tandem with one another. And then, of course, there's the private sector. We know that not just the violence in Charlottesville, but so much extremism has been planned online. We need to hold social media companies to their ethical obligations. If they refuse to act, figure out the leverage and tools we have. There are specific sites that have built full-on business models on extremism. And if they won't act on their own, which they certainly won't, we need to be going after web hosting companies and domain registrars to pressure them to do so. And so there's a lot of tools we have by being clear-eyed about the threat and willing to use these tools We can begin to break that cycle of extremism, but it's not something that any one entity can do on its own. We all need to be a part of this, and we need that whole-of-society approach. Absolutely. Really, thank you for laying that out so comprehensively. And I'm proud to say that AJC is working on so many fronts that you just mentioned in terms of trying to strengthen both hate crimes prosecutions, but also hate crimes reporting, strengthen hate crimes laws, trying to get the private sector involved really trying to raise awareness and levels of education about the threat and about what this means for, certainly for the Jewish community, but also beyond. Some of the recent surveys have shown that a lot of people don't really know what the Holocaust was. They don't really understand the term. We know that there are many states that have some sort of mandate for Holocaust education, but how that is actually implemented and what is actually taught really varies. There's no real standard for that. What do you hear from people in your generation and younger than you about what you do? Do they understand the implications and do they understand what it means to sue a Nazi? You know, I'll answer this a few ways because I think it's it's complicated. I think there are many people who have been deeply engaged and supportive of this from a variety of communities, certainly on the younger side, but certainly on the older side as well who, again, like not just the Jewish community, for obvious reasons, the Jewish community gets this in many ways. But we have been really heartened by the broad-based support for this effort from all sorts of communities, Black churches, the Muslim community, the Sikh community, interfaith, social justice, civil rights organizations and leaders have been key partners in this effort. And so it really speaks to how a diverse coalition has come together, not just the Jewish community that really gets this in our kishkis, as you would, my grandmother would say, but it's something that all of our communities must understand because our fates are intertwined. You can't take on anti-Semitism without taking on white supremacy, xenophobia, racism, and you can't take on those forms of hate without taking on anti-Semitism. We're just too interconnected. And so I think among many people in my generation and younger, there's that recognition that perhaps is fairly new. It's a fairly new concept for many people, and that's important. But at the same time, of course, we know that Holocaust education and general education on key moments in our history is not just not happening in many cases. In many cases, it's actually under attack. And I would tie some of this to some of the conversations happening in this country with efforts to 
shut down education and conversation about Jim Crow and the civil rights era, this red herring of a critical race theory debate that's happening. If we are not clear about history, it happens. Again, not only is it important that we make sure Holocaust education is happening and is happening robustly at a time when it's desperately needed, but I think we also need to recognize equally important to that is education about the civil rights era, about slavery, about Jim Crow, and about so many other dark times in this country's history and in this world's history, because our fates are too intertwined not to. If successful at the end of October, if the trial ends in a favorable way, what next for IFA? And I guess the same question, if it does not result in the kind of judgment you are hoping, what next for IFA? So we are feeling very good going into trial. I will start by saying that. And we wish you, wish you the best. (laughs) We'll be cheering you on. Thank you. And, you know, every week it feels like there's another decision or development in this case that affirms the strength of our case going into trial. Just recently, we won a huge evidentiary sanctions decision against a key neo-Nazi, Asmador Ray, who was a key leader of the Daily Stormer, marched in Charlottesville with a banner that said, gas the K-words, race war now. I won't repeat the actual slogan, of course, and orchestrated a lot of the violence that weekend. And similarly, Elliot Klein, another neo-Nazi, has had comparable evidentiary sanctions went against him. And what these sanctions mean is that it is now an established fact in our case that Ray and Klein conspired to bring racially motivated violence to Charlottesville and that they were motivated by racial animus, which in the case of the Ku Klux Klan Act, the statute we're using, also includes anti-Semitism in addition to racism, and that they then ratified is the term that the courts use, but of course acknowledged and celebrated that violence. And so going into trial with those facts established, the core allegations, the allegations that are at the heart of our lawsuit against two key members of the conspiracy is really giving us some strong ground to start on. We start trial October 25th. It's on the court calendar to run through mid-November. We will see how long it goes with all of the convoluted factors of COVID and security here. But we are prepared to make our strong case and hopeful that we'll win large judgments. And if we are successful, of course, we will be committed to collecting on those judgments, to following the defendants around for the rest of their lives to make sure that they pay those judgments to the victims of their violence. And of course, that they can't do what they did again, which is both part of the relief we seek in this case. And of course, winning those judgments, collecting on those judgments has the tangible effect of bankrupting and dismantling them. And so that is priority number one for our team when this is over. Regardless of what happens at trial, we think that the legacy of Charlottesville and the legacy of this case will be one that makes clear really what motivates these extremists, the violence, the hate at their core, but also the fact that we will make sure there are consequences for this sort of hate. And that can have a deterrent effect that extends well beyond Charlottesville. And really helps push some of these extremists back into the shadows where they belong. Amy, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you and thank Integrity First for America for its critical, important work. We will be watching closely. Thank you so much for everything you do. Thank you so much for having me.
Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And with me is my co-host this week, Melanie Marin-Pell. And Melanie, as SNL made its return this past weekend, I have been thinking a lot about comedy. I don't know if you saw it. There was this sketch of a local school board meeting with a community to discuss COVID restrictions in the classroom. And to me, both the funniest and unfunniest moment was near the beginning when Cecily Strong's character ends her rant about Johnson and Johnson and Johnson and Fauci and T-Mobile. She ends it with, and this, all of this is about Israel. And that to me spoke to really what happened in Congress this past couple weeks, where a select handful of lawmakers seized on the opportunity to pick on Israel in a way that puts civilian lives very much at risk. And that brings me to another comedian that I heard this past week, and that is Sarah Silverman, who criticized the so-called squad, but then in the next breath said that Israel was bad for Palestine. And I have to wonder what she meant by that. And I don't know. It just reminded me about the importance of engaging people in conversation, giving them a chance to explain themselves, and when appropriate, apologize. Absolutely. She said a lot in her statement, and there are aspects of it that I think many of us can agree with. There are certainly things she said that were problematic, I found problematic, that we can also talk about as well. But I do want to commend her for doing the hard thing, which is criticizing or challenging people that she ostensibly admires, people that she sees as allies. And I think that one of the things we've found and one of the things we've seen at AJC in our work, we've been doing this for 115 years. We talk about how important it is. We're constantly reaching out and trying to build bridges to other communities, finding connections, um, you know, really trying to create these coalitions and partners. But I keep thinking about this, and it's doing the hard part of, once you've built a bridge, are you ever going to actually step on it? And are you ever going to put any weight on it? And if you're not willing to put weight on the bridge and actually test its fortitude, then what is the point of having the bridge? How are we ever going to get anywhere? I'm going to, you know, forgive me if I take this analogy to really annoying <laughs> levels, but I think it's appropriate. You know, we talk about bridge building, but again, if our bridges aren't strong enough to sustain a little bit of pressure and a little bit of weight, then what are we doing? And so, you know, that means doing, honestly, what Sarah Silverman did, which is saying to people she sees as, you know, kindred spirits in many ways, people she sees as allies, hey, actually, I'm really horrified by what you're saying. And what you're saying is painful to me, and it's putting my family and people I love at risk, in addition to putting at risk the lives of so many others. So, you know, again, there's a lot that she said that I still think was troubling, but I want to commend her for doing that hard thing, which is really holding people accountable when they say things that are outrageous, outrageous. If we're not willing to do that with our partners, then they're not partners to us and we're not good partners to them. Very good point. Well, so tell me, what did you find outrageous about what she said? What did you find troubling? So you noted it, that she said that, you know, Israel is bad for Palestine. Like that kind of statement to me is just so problematic. First of all, it's so reductive. It's so simplistic and it's so just absolutely wrong. I think there is something that happens that I want to outline for all of our listeners and have them join us in rejecting. And that is the false binary that being pro-Israel 
means you are automatically anti-Palestinian, that if something is good for Israel, it is bad for Palestine. That is simply false, and we have to reject it, and we have to call it out. We cannot build narratives upon that because that is foundationally simply false. And I think that is what she was doing, was you know, sort of making this, well, it's either or. Things are either or. We live in a world of gray zones where there are a lot of people with whom we might agree on some things, but we disagree on other things. This is the gray zone of life, of human beings, of reality, of society. Like, nothing is black or white. So to make a statement that simplistic, to me, is a little bit dangerous because, again, it allows people to then say, well, Sarah Silverman said it, and her family lives there. Her family lives in Israel. So if she says Israel is bad for Palestine, like, who better than her to know? So within the same breath, she said something that is both nuanced, my family lives there, like Iron Dome protects my family, and something that is completely, like, simplistic and reductive in that Israel is bad for Palestine. Perpetuates that false binary, especially if her comment is taken at face value. That's the whole thing, is that I believe, you know, going back to your bridge building analogy, I, I do believe that these missteps are opportunities for constructive conversation, for engagement. What did you mean by that comment, Sarah? Did you mean Israeli policies are bad for the Palestinian people? Was she even poking fun at the false binary, but that didn't quite come through for some of us? I think those questions need to be asked, and she needs to be given an opportunity to answer. And I think that, who knows? She, we might be surprised by that answer. <laughs> yeah, she's clearly listening. She's clearly thinking about these things, you know. And for that alone, I think we should be glad. We want people to challenge their own assumptions. Hopefully, we will see more of that from everyone in every position of prominence and power. It seems to be in short supply often. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Melanie, thank you so much for your conversation with Amy earlier in the episode. And thank you for this conversation as well. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. In case you missed it, listen to this week's bonus episode about what Americans can learn from the EU's effort to eradicate anti-Semitism. And tune in next week for a conversation with author Dara Horn about her latest book, People Love Dead Jews. We read between the lines and find it has a lot to teach us about fighting for Jews who are still alive. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Ku Kong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 